Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. No, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. Machines are going to fail. And the system's going to fail. Then? And then what? Then survival. Who has the ability to survive? That's the game. Survival. From 1972's Deliverance, that's the late Burt Reynolds with John Voight. Reynolds died last week at 82. After more than a decade on the small screen, it was John Borman's Best Picture nominee that helped make Reynolds a box office giant in the 70s and 80s. This week on the show, some thoughts on Deliverance and Reynolds in a blind spotting review. Plus, a review of The Predator, the fourth installment of the 80s action franchise, not counting those alien side projects. That and more. Get to the Joppa at Unfilmed Spotting. Welcome into Film Spotting. Apologies in advance to everyone who's looking forward to us power ranking 80s action movies. This was an idea that we devoted a fair amount of time to riffing on during last week's episode. We thought we were going to do that tying in with The Predator this week, and that got replaced by a consideration of one of Burt Reynolds' most well-known and beloved films. Yeah, I think that was the right direction to go in. I think we did set a record, though, for commiserating both on air and over Slack on a topic that didn't come to fruition. That's is, right. Is that maybe the most time a lot of angst. spent? A lot of angst. We might have to revisit that just because of all the energy we put in. Yeah. Shelve it for maybe another day. Absolutely. Later in the show, we will have a blind spotting review of the 1973 Best Picture nominee that lost to The Godfather. Blind spotting, probably pretty obvious, but if you're new to the show, this is a case where we discuss a movie that could be considered a sacred cow. That's when we take a film that is pretty much universally adored, and we've both seen it at least once, and we reconsider it. Blindspotting is a case where it's one of those films, but neither of us have caught up with it before. So we're going to rectify that as we get into that conversation a little bit later. Who knows? With Josh, he might just bless us with a hot take that says Deliverance is actually a better movie than The Godfather. We'll see. Might happen. (sighs) We'll also play Massacre Theater and more. But first, Adam and I will offer a joint hot take, or at least a fresh from the screening review. Not hot. Of The Predator. The creature's braids, Adam? Cultural appropriation. Predators just don't sit around making hats out of rib cages. They conquered space. But that's not what's on the horizon. Should I be worried? Rally. I think you know what is on the ship. The ultimate predators. Light him up! We may die. We're still here. So come and get us, mother. 
Can we claim, Josh, that this is a still processing review of The Predator? Are you still processing it? I mean, I think I stopped processing it the moment the credits rolled. (laughs) With that said, maybe we should set up our Predator bona fides, or lack thereof, as that may shade the conversation a little bit. This is the fourth installment in the series, sixth if you count the Alien versus Predator movies. So... On my side, I've only seen the first Predator movie. Okay. I basically know nothing about this franchise. You have seen at least one more of those installments, but... That's it. On your side, you claim that it's better than the original. I am a fan of Predators over Predator. This is correct. There's marks against both of us here. Well, yeah, I mean, (laughs) we don't have any credibility going into this conversation. I was... Mildly intrigued by the concept, though, and I think a lot of that had to do with Shane Black coming on as co-writer along with Fred Decker and director. Shane Black having, of course, a supporting role in the original Predator 1987s, then writing a bunch of Hollywood action comedies, primarily the Lethal Weapon series, and then becoming, in recent years, a director in his own right with a fairly healthy critical following. I mean, he's a he's a critical favorite in mm-hmm. some corners. And so there was some interest in having him come back to this material, some interesting cast members. Um, maybe we can start there. Yeah, maybe come back. Talk about the cast. You say two because he does appear in the first one. Yeah, that's a small part. It's a part small part, part yeah, there. Yeah. But otherwise, you're right. Lethal Weapon, that's where he made his bones. And I still consider that a top-notch 80s action movie, and you're right, in recent years, wrote and directed Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, and I actually really like his screenplay for Iron Man 3 as far as those Marvel movies go, and then we were both fans of The Nice Guys in 2016, Russell Crowe, Ryan Gosling in that film. So I was thinking about starting there in terms of the writing, what you want from a Shane Black movie, quips, you want good one-liners? You want humor? Did we get that? But I'm happy to start where you want to start, which is with the cast. Well, they're kind of intertwined because what I was going to say is the one thing you want are those quips to be well-delivered. And I think The Predator shows you that you know whatever percentage, however you want to split it, it comes down to not only the material, but it comes down to the delivery. And I, I think there are probably only two people I would point to in this extensive ensemble cast who are able to split the difference between just laughable hardassery, which is what a lot mm-hmm. of this material is, and taking it too seriously. So on the one end, you'll have like Arnold, you'll have Schwarzenegger, and it becomes a joke immediately. It's fun, but it's a joke when he delivers some lines like this. And I know Shane Black did not write the original Predator, but mm-hmm. it's that sort of material. Um, and then you have the people who are able to sell it. And they mean it. These characters mean it. They're tough guys. But there's just a little bit of maybe call it awareness, a little bit of sell in the delivery where you can also chuckle at it without laughing at them. Mm-hmm. I think Sterling K. Brown does that beautifully. That was going to be one of my guesses. Yep. He's he's kind of a heavy, let's say. Yeah. He's a government agent who's overseeing this operation to track down this predator that has landed on Earth once again. And he just walks in a scene. He's got the confidence combined with the vulgar language and the authority of his government position. Yep. It's just all – it's a nice mixture and he delivers some of those one-liners well. The other one – and this is this is good because he's essentially the lead – is an actor that 
I was unfamiliar with, Boyd Holbrook. Hmm. I went through half of this movie thinking he was either Charlie Hunnam. Yeah, or, or Sam Garrett. Worthington. Oh, I was going to go Garrett Hedlund. Sure. As a matter of fact, I was just going to ask you if we could refer to him as Charlie Garrett Hunnam Hedlund. There's a lot of DNA mixing going on in this yeah. plot. I think there may have been some DNA mixing in those actors because they are the same screen presence, all three of these guys. But hey, it works here. Mm-hmm. I think that Holbrook can deliver again. He's this tough guy, this sniper who gets mixed up in the middle of this. Um, and he's got he's got the heft for it, for what this particular Shane Black persona needs. And he can deliver some of these lines. But man, a lot of the other people, there are some clunkers here. Hmm. And these are actors we've said before that we like, Trevante Rhodes. And you have Keegan-Michael Key, who's supposed to be a Not surprisingly, the comic relief, but a lot of that stuff is – it's pretty dire. And then poor Olivia Munn. Mm -hmm. I mean, given I suppose in an equal opportunity gesture, some of this like really rough tough guy dialogue too, but it comes out of nowhere considering she's supposed to be this evolutionary biologist. All of her behavior comes out of nowhere. I mean – It's just a badly written character. And now we're we're getting to the script because I did have significant questions, just, you know, not nitpicking, just instances where I was wondering, why is this person doing this? How did they get here? Yeah. What is the motivation There's tons of that. There is a lot of that in The Predator. Yeah, unfortunately. What we've seen this year from this film and Annihilation is basically if you're a biologist, you also know how to shoot – an M16 or whatever gun well, you pick at up. At least in Annihilation, there's that backstory yes, to the at character. Least it's explained <laughs> don't that get it here. she did serve and yes. she does know how to shoot a gun. And here, the moment all hell breaks loose, which is also just kind of absurd. I mean, they've got this predator strapped down. This is early in the film. And they know what it's capable of. And yet they somehow, I guess, forget to give it its dose of tranquilizer to keep it subdued. It's... It's ridiculous. But as soon as that happens and the Predator just starts annihilating people, she instantly goes into battle mode. Yes. Like she's one of the snipers who has been a ranger or the something. The lone person tracking this exactly. space piece down. She knows how to carry the gun. She is tracking it. There's a lot of those kinds of problems with this movie. And then they pull the rug out from under her too where it comes down to – a comic relief moment where she shoots herself in the foot. And then all of a sudden she's that hapless woman in need of rescuing. So it's it's like back and forth and you never know what to expect from her. Yeah, that's true. Sterling K. Brown, I would have counted on that, you feeling like that was one of the better performances in the film. Again, he's wasted too, though, ultimately. There's loose ends with his character or there's more they could have done with him in terms of making him someone that we didn't care about. We weren't necessarily rooting for, but... We'd be excited to see every time he popped up on screen. And that was there. I was. I was too. But I feel like I would have felt that even more had they actually made him more of a foil to the Boyd Holbrook character. As it is, he just shows up kind of when the plot needs him to show up, which isn't that compelling. But he's an actor. This Is Us is the show he's on, I think, on NBC. I've never watched it. I don't know of any of his movie roles. But I saw him on Saturday Night Live this past season and was instantly sold on him as – Certainly one of the best recent hosts Saturday Night Live has had, and he made me believe that he's just one of those screen presences who I want to see more of. And he just does bring that heaviness 
to it. He brings the kind of flippant, I don't care, I'm determined to get what I want and no one's going to stand in my way, but then also brings the humor, and you're right, is able to deliver the lines in an entertaining way. I didn't have as much problem overall with the group dynamic, the group that the Boyd Holbrook character gets caught up in, the self-described loonies. For the most part, I liked their chemistry together. Thomas Jane in there, as you said, Keegan-Michael Key. And I felt like there were at least some funny moments that came out of that chemistry. But when you have all those people on screen and you have a Shane Black script, how is it that I only even thought to laugh out loud one time in this movie? And I actually wasn't even amused. I, I I can't point to, Josh, a single memorable line of dialogue in this movie. Uh, No, there aren't many that are going to become quotable classics. And I think it comes down to that combination of delivery as well. You got to have the material and the delivery. And I just don't think that magic combination is here. That whole ragtag group was such a throwback to like 80s and 90s where they each get one characteristic, right? And we have the scene where they have to go around in a circle and explain their entire character with one thing. And in this case, it's a form of mental illness, really, is their characteristic. And that's all they get. And and the rest of the movie just kind of tries to fall back on that. Um, Sterling K. Brown also, in the framing device for Black Panther, is probably where, that's at least where I first saw him. you're right. And, And... you know, holds that scene with a different presence, but an equally riveting one. Great call. So, yeah, he's uh, he's a highlight here. You, you didn't like Holbrook or you were just kind of indifferent on him? No, I thought he was fine, actually. Okay. And I was thinking of the same guys, Charlie Hunnam. The one I was thinking of was Sam Worthington, actually, not Garrett Hedlund, though I can see it. He looks more like Garrett Hedlund. And Keith Phipps was sitting between us there at the screening. And Sam Worthington was the name that popped into his head as well. So I felt like actually he was a more compelling actor than I usually feel Hunnam is or Sam Worthington. I thought he was pretty good. And I don't know if it's really a strength of this movie or not that it's so schlocky and it so clearly wants to be irreverent and exploitative in a way in terms of the gore and the blatant violence and going for humor sometimes out of that, that it never does try to push the emotion too far. It doesn't really try to get serious. There's a whole subplot with his son and his wife that Boyd Holbrook is estranged from, but there aren't really any truly touching moments between them. And the movie never tries to push for those. And like I said, I wonder if that's a strength of the film, because if it did go there, it would have been so absurd in an already absurd movie. At the same time, it doesn't give you much to latch on to at all besides the gore and the violence. Yeah, there's. I think that's a hallmark, at least of the two films that I've seen, is the explicit gore emphasizing, you know, how these predators dismember their victims. There's, there's always been in the films I've seen a focus on that. There's that really awkward scene at the end with his son where they try to honor. I think it comes about three seconds after a climactic violent action moment has ended and they try to honor the other members in his group. That's pretty, you know, that's going for emotion. And because it's probably, as you say, the only instance in the entire film, it, it completely stands out. I was just surprised again, you know, knowing black as a, as a screenwriter, how awkwardly that whole plot line with his son is worked into the overall narrative. And man, probably, the first half hour of this is really ungainly 
attempts to bring together the Boyd Holbrook thread, the mm-hmm. Olivia Munn thread, and his son, played by Jacob Tremblay. And you're just wondering, why are we going back and forth from these? Uh, it just It's not an efficient screenplay. I don't think it's a matter— Not remotely. I don't think it's a matter of tone, you know, that you're talking about. I think it does get the tone it wants to, and whether or not that works for you is going to be up to your individual taste. Uh, it's more just a matter of basic construction. It really is. And that's also what you don't expect from a Shane Black film. It feels as though this is one of those movies that in the editing room— Certain decisions were made that were probably detrimental to the film in terms of trying to pick up the pacing. And it is very quickly paced, but not in a good way, not in an efficient way. As you said, there are all sorts of loose ends and there are plot holes here. And there's a lot of characters knowing exactly what next move to make because the plot needs them to get there and it needs us to get there and they're not going to explain it. How Trevante Rhodes uh, ended up with the police car when he he shows up. Yep. You can explain that to me? No, I can't. And and the movie doesn't care. The movie doesn't care about any of those types of explanations. Right. And that is a problem, I think, even with a movie like this where you still want to buy in to the world it's creating. You still want to latch on to something. As I said, in this movie, unfortunately, doesn't give you anything. And gore alone for me, interesting ways people are being dismembered is never going to be enough for me. Sure, sure. Uh, So I will say, you know, I have always been intrigued by this alien world that this franchise has developed. The creature in particular, I think Stan Winston's work in the 87 original is clearly the highlight and the costume design and creature design, all of that stuff. Um, One of the reasons I really like Predators is because that takes place on the Predators planet. So Mm. you get to see more of that. There's more imagination there. Um, This movie borrows the alien dogs. Uh, Keegan-Michael Keegan calls them the space dogs. Yeah. They're from, they're actually from predators and they work much better in that environment than how they're used here. Um, But I will say also there's something, you know, you mentioned the lab sequence that comes in early on when the predator escapes and there's something demystifying about seeing that creature in this clean, almost office lab environment. It's just not as thrilling as what we've seen in the previous films, at least what I've seen. It it almost looks like someone in cosplay, basically. Hmm. I'm not saying that it's a matter of quality, but it's just the setting. And later there's an action scene in an elementary school. And I don't know. There's just something that moving this franchise in that direction takes away from the mystique of of a really, you know, cool creature that they've developed just it loses something here for me. Well, I feel like that was possibly by design that they really were setting out Trying to demystify new. it. That that's black playing with some conventions a little bit and playing with this convention of the predator and taking some of the power away from the predator. Now, he might argue and others that He puts it back in the form of another predator that we meet in this movie. But you're right. As soon as we are introduced to that predator character in that setting, no matter how many scientists we see him take out in that environment, there is a fear factor. There is a mystique that's lost that I think does hurt this film. So to give credit where credit is due, there is one really good gag, I think, here, and that involves Halloween night where – McKenna's son, Jacob Tremblay, has come upon one of the masks, the helmets mm-hmm. that the Predators wear, and, and he ends up putting that on for his Halloween costume. Now, whether or not you believe 
everything that goes on to happen in that scene and how it plays out. That's a pretty funny image. A, an interesting Shane Black way of tweaking the mystique we're talking about by putting it in a different context. That did get a laugh from me. The Predator is out now in wide release. If you see it and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. More men doing manly things ahead when we remember the late Burt Reynolds with a blind spotting review of Deliverance. Stay with us. So that's one hour for the poet, one for the scholar, one for the warrior, and add on 35 minutes, give or take, for the shameless exhibitionist. The man, T.E. Lawrence, the subject of David Lean's historical epic, Lawrence of Arabia. Chicago's Music Box Theater has a brand new print of Lawrence that's showing as part of its annual 70-millimeter film festival. And next week on the show, as we have promised, we are going to get to a Sacred Cow review of Lean's film, and we are going to share our top five David Lean scenes. We've touched on this a little bit, I think, on air, certainly off air. I've seen the Lean films that are considered his masterpieces, so I'm in an okay spot for this, but I do have a little bit of homework I'd like to fill in. I have noticed, based on your letterbox diary, Josh, that you've been getting to some homework as well. Yeah, it's been really fun to get a chance to do that. I have watched three lean films now, no four that I had never seen before. Shockingly, the one I still have to get to is the one I probably should have prioritized, Bridge on the River Kwai. Yeah, it's the longest, so you waited. Exactly, and uh, probably the most prominent. But, you know, I had some time on this, so I wanted to start chronologically, been working my way through. Oh, that's your method? Yeah, I prefer to do it that way, but I will get, I have to get to Bridge on the River Kwai in the next week. In contrast to Bridge and to Lawrence of Arabia, living up to its name, Brief Encounter, a brief film. 85 minutes, 85 glorious minutes. And can I just say this now without having watched Bridge? His best, probably. (laughs) No, you can't say that. You can't say that. Without having seen Bridge. I probably agree with that. Okay. But no, you can't say it because you have not seen that classic film yet. We have a note about you, Josh, out in the community, out Talking about movies are prayers. Continuing the book tour, it's the never-ending book tour. It doesn't never end. Hey, if I'm invited to come give a talk about the book, I'm going to do it. It's a lot of fun, and I have been invited by the University of St. Thomas in St. Paul, Minnesota. It's going to happen at the end of this month, Friday, September 28th. 
I'll be leading a workshop and a discussion breaking down Toy Story as a prayer of confession. Toy Story, the, the series or the main just film? Just the first The film. first one. Yeah, it's, it's really Buzz Lightyear's confession is kind of what we're working through here. So we'll watch a couple scenes, talk about it, move on through other scenes. I've done these for other films that I discuss in detail in the book, and it, it really is a lot of fun. People get into it. So this is free, open to the public. They are asking that you register. So we're going to link to some of the details, how you can do that. I also hope to organize a film spotting meetup for the Twin Cities. And maybe, yeah, I think pretty sure it'll be that night, Friday, September 28. If some people want to get together, email us at feedback at filmspotting.net or find me on social media, Larson on Film. And if you do live in that area and you know of some places near the University of St. Thomas's St. Paul campus that are good for beer and conversation, Give me those names, addresses, and we'll try to put something together. I have one in mind myself, actually. Excellent. In St. Paul that I can give you if nobody else comes through. So last week on the show, it was our big hawk extravaganza, the hawkening, the hawkissance. My interview with Ethan Hawk plus our top five Ethan Hawk moments. Keith Phipps from The Next Picture Show joined us for that. We also asked you a new non-hawk-related poll question. What's the best non-World War II historical epic of the last 25 years historical epics on our mind of course because of lawrence of arabia so thinking of movies like lean's epic historic setting big performances big vistas kind of old-fashioned approach to movie making i don't know whether or not all of our options truly fit that bill or not so far the voting is pretty balanced so the options seem to work for most listeners josh those options were mel gibson's braveheart james cameron's titanic ridley scott's gladiator Peter Weir's Master and Commander, or Alejandro Gonzalez in Yaritu's The Revenant, and we do have the other option as well. We do. Now, of those five choices, we did fail to make our choices last week on the show, which is great. Maybe we don't bias listeners in any way or predispose them in some way. And I believe, I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure you are, on some scale, a fan of all five of those films. Is that the case? Yes. Okay. But I can set aside two for voting purposes, fairly easily, Gladiator and Titanic. Mm-hmm. I know I'm not going there. I haven't seen Braveheart since it came out, so I don't know what to do with that. I'm pretty sure I don't like Braveheart as much as I like The Revenant. I like Master and Commander quite a bit too, though. So for me, it's between those two. I'd, I'd probably have to go with The Revenant. Made my top 10 list that year, much to your chagrin. I yes, indeed. And of those five, The Revenant is the only one I would kick out on the grounds that I don't particularly like the movie. My favorite of the bunch. Those are good grounds, by the way. By far, yeah. My favorite of the bunch is Peter Weir's Master and Commander. And really, it's not even close. And I like those three other films a fair amount. But Master and Commander is my favorite. So I'm voting for it. If you haven't voted already, you can vote now at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're listening from. We will get to those results on next week's show. All right. It's time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt a couple of weeks back adam and i massacred this scene see what i want to do here is to strip richard bear metaphorically let's get rid of the hump let's get rid of the twisted extremities and show him the way he would be today the queen who wanted to be king yes question are you serious now what's the objection elliot well, number one, I have to play it. Number two, I like the hump and the club foot. Uh, number three, I've been working on the part for three months. Well, I respect that. I mean, that's why we're here, isn't it? To exchange ideas. 
Tell me, how do you see Richard? Mr. Macho, is that it? No, uh, look, I, I don't think the guy is a, a linebacker for the Chicago Bears, but uh, let's not throw away one of his prime motivations. Oh, and what's that? He wants to hump Lady Anne. Yes, I've heard that before. So this is usually where we tell you about the scene you just heard, but we got a great voicemail in response to our performance. We'll let longtime listener Henrik Hansen fill you in. Hello, Adam and Josh. This is Henrik Hansen calling from Yalding in Kent. Thank you for Massacre Theater. Thank you for the goodbye girl and for a tribute to Neil Simon, uh, who sadly left us. The goodbye girl is, it was a great choice, actually, because it wasn't one of Simon's Broadway plays adapted for the film, something he wrote directly for the screen. That was uh, Paul Benedict you were playing there, Josh, and Richard Dreyfus, And the film is filled with just great quotes. I don't like the panties hanging on the rod. And uh, I sleep in the nude, El Buffo. Dreyfus got an Oscar for the role. And it was, it was an incredible performance and a wonderful, wonderful film. Another Neil Simon film you've got to check out is Murder by Death. It's like the movie Clue, only if it was written well. And it's the world's greatest detectives with an incredible cast. You've got Alec Guinness, Peter Sellers, David Niven, Maggie Smith, Peter Falk. It's tremendous fun. Oh, and they're invited to this spooky mansion by Truman Capote, who plays Lionel Twain, the eccentric millionaire. Marvelous Neil Simon movie. He could do everything. He could do poignant. He could do goofy. Thank you for your performance. It was uh, delightful. Thank you very much. Thank you, Henrik, so much for that. You did sell us, or at least you sold me, on wanting to see Murder by Death, a movie that I'm pretty sure I had not heard of before your voicemail. So I do appreciate that. That was 1977's The Goodbye Girl, directed by Herbert Ross, written by Neil Simon, who just passed away on August 26th at the age of 91. That massacre was part of episode 695, a golden brick blowout show. Yeah, that's where we reviewed a number of small films that are in consideration for the 2018 golden brick. That's our Award for the overlooked film of the year, the one we thought that was visionary, showed promise from a new filmmaker, and we wanted more people to find. Things that were on our mind when we picked that scene, well, of course, the passing of playwright and screenwriter Neil Simon. Also, the whole actors and directors dynamic tied in nicely with one of the Golden Brick contenders we reviewed on the show, Madeline's Madeline. Yeah, acting troops a key part of both Madeline's Madeline and the goodbye girl, Andre Cadeau. In Charlottesville, Virginia, wrote in and said, even though Josh had the heavier lifting, I think Adam did a much better job. With Josh's accent and cadence, he sounded like a British William Shatner. Maybe all that Star Trek talk slipped into his subconscious. Uh, It was actually a Welsh William Uh, Shatner I was uh, going for. Of course. Danny Hensel in Washington, D.C. said, even if Adam was disappointed in his own performance as Richard Dreyfuss's Elliot Garfield, there was enough sniveling and flexibility for me to identify him. Josh, meanwhile, brought his A-game. I can't remember the actor or the character's name, but Josh nailed the director's snootiness in just the one line or so that I heard. Sniveling and flexibility. I've got that in spades. Debbie Beeling, Sugarland, Texas, wrote in, I was so delighted to hear Adam and Josh reenact a scene from one of my favorite movies, The Goodbye Girl. During a week when we lost Senator John McCain and Aretha Franklin, two amazing American giants, Neil Simon's death was overshadowed. I'm glad you recognized him in this way. Debbie had a few different connections. One of them was the Madeline acting troupe connection, Richard Dreyfuss playing an actor who is part of a troupe doing that very infamously bad 
production of Richard III. And Debbie notes that specific scene in The Goodbye Girl that we massacred is so great because you do have a director with a new vision for a production of Richard III. If his off, 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 off Broadway production had become a movie, would he have been eligible for a Golden Brick Award? Maybe well, certainly, so. certainly in concept, if not in execution. Debbie closes, Adam, you are in the penalty box until you watch this film. Shocking that you've never watched it. Love the show. Never miss an episode. So Uh-oh. guess what? You can release me from the penalty box. Yes. I actually watched it Sunday. Wait, you had oh, you had heard of it. You just hadn't seen it. Oh, yeah. I'm the one you were never, the one that I somehow had never heard of The Goodbye hey, Girl. Hey, 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 You said you'd never heard of Murder by Death. Well, so, you know Murder by Death? I've heard of it. <laughs> I don't there, believe it. There was an eye roll. I mean, The Goodbye the Girl, it got Oscar nominations. Richard Dreyfuss was the what youngest, can I tell you? youngest Best Actor we winner can, at the we time. We can go on and debate, which is more embarrassing, to not have heard of Murder we by could. Death. We, we could. <laughs> Maybe we should just stall for another 10 minutes and do that. Speaking of that... If I'm remembering the lore correctly, because I didn't I didn't know that until I read some of this feedback that Dreyfus's best actor win made him the youngest best actor winner at the time. He was like 30. And Richard Dreyfus is one of those actors who no matter what age he is on screen, he looks perpetually like he's 45. And that's how <laughs> right. he looks in the goodbye girl. Yeah, so true. that that totally took me off guard. But a connection back to the predator discussion. The guy who then took over that mantle, Adrian Brody. Isn't Adrian Brody in the Predators movie you like? He is. The lead. Okay. He's good. Yeah. It, all, a, it all connects, Josh. It, it does all connect. So, but you did watch. I did watch Girl, it and, and I loved it. You loved it. Yeah, okay. I loved it. Like, of course, I'm going to be a sucker for all of that acting troupe stuff, but that's not the core of the movie. The core of the movie is Marsha Mason and her daughter and that relationship that blooms between both of them, actually, and Richard Dreyfuss's actor character. And I'll take it back to The Predator again for a second. The thing we wanted from Shane Black, what you expect from Neil Simon, the witty lines, just those really memorable, quotable lines of dialogue. This movie has a hundred of them, and I definitely do recommend The Goodbye Girl. So, Josh, there were a lot of people who I think were in the same boat as us, either having never seen the film or, like you, never even heard of it because they didn't enter Massacre Theater. Not a brimming film-spotting hat. Why don't you reach in and pick out this week's winner? The winner is Brian Monsell. He's from Tacoma Park, Maryland. Congratulations, Brian. Email feedback at filmspotting.net, and we will set you up with your very own Film Spotting T-shirt. It's a scene, man. Memorize it. <laughs> What? Look, man, undercover cops got to be Marlon Brando, right? To do this job, you got to be a great actor. You got to be naturalistic. You got to be naturalistic as hell. We move on now to this week's scene. We will note that the original scene has three speakers. We've modified it slightly to make it a two-person scene. And really, there's not a lot of dialogue here. This is going to be quick. One, One little bit for each actor in this scene. And... It's not an incredibly well-known film. I think that's fair to say. Maybe more well-known to most of our listeners than 1977's The Goodbye Girl. Probably. But probably not that widely seen, which means the accent work, Josh, the accent work yeah. is going to be crucial. I am not feeling – I'm just going to say it. I'm not feeling confident about it. I don't know if I have this in my toolkit. Your accent is going to determine whether or not someone gets a film spotting T-shirt. I know. Because otherwise this, they won't be able to enter. Is this – Motivation. It's a lot of weight. It's a lot of weight on your shoulders. All right. 
Okay, we're gonna we're gonna cue up the fire. Can you make actually the the campfire sure. sound oh, effects yeah. while I yes. the crackling noise, Josh? I've got a lot going on. I'm yeah, the one with do. the I'm accent. Sorry. You do the crackling. Okay. I started off here and give me the action. And action. Where do you think those boys are now? Up in heaven? Getting fit for wings? Nah. I'll tell you where they are. They're not. That's where. They're nowhere. They're gone. I really wish I could believe in that stuff. This is real. The cold. That's real. They're in my lungs. Those bastards. Out there in the dark. Stalking us. It's this world that I'm worried about. Not the next. And... Scene. Man, we just set back diplomatic relations in like three different countries (laughs) simultaneously, Josh. Well, it is a kingdom. (laughs) Well played. If you know what film we just massacred, email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. Your deadline is Monday, September 24th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. To get official massacre theater rules, visit filmspotting.net. We have a big chance. A big chance to make a run for some big bucks. 80,000 of them. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do? Kidnap the Pope or something? How'd you guess? <laughs> no, we're just going to run over to Texarkana and pick up 400 cases of Coors. And bring it back in 28 hours. 1977, getting a lot of love on this show. Burt Reynolds in Smokey and the Bandit from that year. Reynolds died last week at the age of 82. He made the box office top 10 for 12 consecutive years, 1973 to 1984. If I heard correctly on another podcast, I think from 77 to 82, that five-year span, he was number one, the biggest male box office draw. His first TV appearance was in 1958. He spent three years on the long-running Gunsmoke in the 60s. Deliverance came in 1972, The Longest Yard in 74, Smoking and the Bandit in 77 with sequels in 80 and 83, Cannonball Run in 81 with a sequel in 84, and his big comeback, of course, Boogie Nights. Now, last year, he had an A24 release, The Last Movie Star. I had to look that up after seeing that here in our notes in front of me, Josh. That one somehow just came and went completely. Is it on your radar at all? Or I was remember it? hearing about it, but certainly didn't see it. No. Now, Deliverance... The film that we are going to give some discussion to now was nominated for Best Picture in 73, along with The Godfather and Cabaret. It got a Best Director nomination for John Borman. It's written by James Dickey based on his 1970 bestselling book. It was a box office hit, the fifth highest grossing movie of 72. Let's go ahead and hear a clip from it. What the hell you think you're doing? Heading down river. Little canoe trip. Heading for Aintree. Aintree? Sure. This river only runs one way, Captain. Haven't you heard? You ain't never going to get down to Aintree. Well, why not? Because this river don't go to Aintree. You done taking the wrong turn. See, uh, the Cher River don't go nowhere near Aintree. 
As we mentioned at the start of the show, this was a last-minute call to pay tribute to Burt Reynolds with a discussion about deliverance. And it's funny how these things happen sometimes where you think you're discussing two completely different films. And in some ways we are discussing two very different films, but The Predator and Deliverance actually do have that connection in terms of being at their most basic level man versus nature films, specifically two films about groups of men facing an enemy out in nature. Now, I'm not going to ask you, Josh, to go into great detail about other potential connections between those two films. We're going to put The Predator in our rearview mirror. Probably wise. We undertook this discussion for mostly selfish reasons. Of all the Burt Reynolds movies we both haven't seen, and there are quite a few. Yeah. Only Boogie Nights, perhaps, has a stronger pedigree than Deliverance. Safe to say, and you could argue yeah, Deliverance that sounds, that sounds right. is even more highly regarded. It was a box office hit, as I mentioned. It did also earn three Oscar nominations. In addition to picture and director, it got a Best Editing nom. And from dueling banjos to squeal like a piggy, it's been part of the pop culture consciousness for over four decades. But I was relieved to discover that Deliverance was, in fact, the movie that made Reynolds a movie star. So it's totally appropriate that we'd honor him by considering his breakout turn. Now, having seen it, I'm, of course, curious whether or not we made the right call. Besides crossing off a major blind spot, did we see a truly great Reynolds performance or at least one with elements of greatness? But we'll get to that. According to Filmsite.org, Reynolds was cast as macho outdoorsman Lewis Medlock in Deliverance only after the role had been turned down, quote, on account of its on-location hazards by a trio of much older, more esteemed, though in the case of these first two, significantly slighter Hollywood heavyweights. Henry Fonda, Jimmy Stewart, and Marlon Brando. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's hard to imagine, right? Reynolds, the former college football player and stuntman, certainly had the physical gifts to sustain the rigors of canoeing down the treacherous Kalawahasi River. And of those three legends, it's hard to imagine anyone but Brando possibly matching Reynolds' stature and swagger. Come to think of it, there are shades of Brando's jungle philosopher Colonel Kurtz, in Lewis, just as there are shades of Apocalypse Now's journey into the heart of darkness in Deliverance. Sometimes you have to lose yourself before you can find anything, says Lewis, channeling his inner Kurtz to John Voight's Ed at an early point in their journey. An excursion led by Lewis, joined by Ed and Ned Beatty's Bobby and Ronnie Cox's Drew, to experience Mother Nature's majesty and cruelty before the northern Georgia area is decimated to pave way for progress, the creation of a hydroelectric dam. Machines are going to fail, and the system's going to fail. Then, survival. Theorizes Lewis slash Kurtz at another point, and all that poetic contemplation makes me wonder, Josh, if Lewis, and Deliverance overall, offers Reynolds, and us as viewers, something more substantive, something deeper than being merely an efficient vehicle for his almost unmatched virility. Yeah, I mean, it is an efficient vehicle for that, and I'm so glad we chose to catch up with this to dig into his work, begin really to dig into his work, because I would not have even recognized him, I think, if I didn't already have an awareness that he was in Deliverance, because my picture of Burt Reynolds is so ingrained. None of these films have I seen all the way through, I think. But as a kid, just seeing flashes by in the culture of Smokey and the Bandit and of mm -hmm. Cannonball Run and the sort of, you know, grinning, smarmy, the guy on the, the bear rug in the Playgirl spread is 
just who I think of as Burt Reynolds. And, and you know, I don't I think, think there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> I, I'm not saying there is, but that's not a guy that I would have equated with the performance that's given in this film, I guess is what I'm saying, because this is a part that could have been played at those volume levels. I, mm-hmm. I think of those as loud characters just in, in my memory and the snippets I've seen. Okay, Reynolds was a very big presence. And I think this is part of what was he was kind of skewering himself in something like Boogie Nights. You kind of had to have that idea of him for that performance to work. Uh, but here he's playing an alpha male, the biggest guy in this story, right? The manliest man in this story. But he carries it with an ease. He, he's not putting it on. He's not going. He's not barking at anyone. When he delivers those lines, those philosophical musings, they come out as matter of fact, as this is just who he is as a guy. I think there's a difference. I love the Kurtz comparison. That didn't strike me, but that's that's really really smart. Uh, The difference, I think, is that Kurtz is there to establish a kingdom. And Lewis, even though he is the closest thing to an environmentalist in this group, right? He's really pissed about this project because it's going to destroy his weekend play space. But he's still a consumer of the wilderness, right? He comes in, he's got the slickest outfit, the rubber vest, he's got the compass watch, all the equipment. He comes into the wilderness to take what he wants as a weekender, and then he leaves. He's not really there to exist as a part of no. it. Um, and I think that's a through line. That, that was a surprise to me about Deliverance. Those scenes you mentioned, obviously I was aware of those. I had some vague idea of what the story was. Um, and the most notorious elements. But I didn't realize that this was also an ecological nightmare, that this was looking ahead more than anything. I think it's also a deconstruction of masculinity, and we'll probably get into that. Yeah. But it really registered for me as uh, this nightmare about the, and we'll get to the most notorious scene, the raping of the earth that's going on. And how that metaphorically does – is reflected in some of the specific violence that we encounter in this story. Mm-hmm. Well, we could certainly parse the bigness-o-meter of Burt Reynolds' performances in all of his films if we had the time and had the knowledge. We haven't seen really enough of his films. But I will disagree with you a little bit in your assessment of Reynolds, not in this film. I think you're dead on in terms of his stillness. But – just today, I managed to rewatch Smoking the Bandit, and I saw Starting Over, another film from his in the 70s. And the one thing that stood out to me in both of those films and in Deliverance, and all three couldn't be more different. You know, Starting Over is this James L. Brooks screenplay about him as a husband who's left by Candace Bergen at the beginning of the movie, and he just wants to be with someone again so badly and he's just kind of lost and he's very docile it's completely the opposite Mm. of lewis here and of course of the bandit in smoking the bandit but the common denominator is how small the performances are even in smoking the bandit how much of it he just lets come to him on screen he's got kind of that self-deprecating sense of humor the grin sure but other than that it's not a big a performance. There's a casualness. Yeah, and I what can you see really that. see here, I do think it comes down to his physical presence. I think that's a huge part of it. When you have an actor who is that comfortable with his body mm-hmm. as an athlete and as someone who 
knows how to use it the way he clearly does, not only as an athlete, but as a stuntman. And he does stand out compared to so many other Hollywood actors. Like by the time you get just five years down the road to Smokey and the Bandit, he's a lankier figure. He looks a little bit more like the cowboy he's playing there. Here he's still got that athlete's physique and he towers over everyone else in the movie. And it's funny because I heard Wesley Morris talking with Bill Simmons on Simmons podcast about Burt Reynolds. And Wesley made the point that you can sort of break down his performances, though at some point I think he went with the mustache and never left it. But there are those performances that are mustache performances and the (laughs) non-mustache ones. And as you would expect, the ones with the mustache are the ones that are more like Bandit, where they ask him to be a little bit more gregarious, a little bit more charismatic, have a little bit more swagger. And it seems to me that Deliverance is in a way an outlier or it's stuck in kind of that in between because he is a more thoughtful and philosophical character at times, but he undoubtedly has the swagger. We know from early on in this film that these people shouldn't be on this river. There are all sorts of signs telling them to turn around and go home. And the only reason they stay is because they're being led by him. And if we don't believe that as viewers, if we don't believe in that confidence and that swagger of Lewis, then the whole movie falls apart. John Voight was a bigger star at the time coming off Midnight Cowboy. He certainly, as a character here, his character is asked to do more and he's asked to do more. It becomes his story. Absolutely. I would argue that the best acting, if I just have to single out a particular sequence, the best acting in the movie is Ned Beatty. And it's after that infamous sequence. You want to talk about smallness and stillness? His ability, after a scene where, let's just say it, he's been raped by a mountain man, by what they call a hillbilly, a redneck up in the woods. He is raped by him. And afterwards, when they're discussing what they're going to do in the aftermath of some violence that's occurred, some violence that was brought on totally by self-defense, it's really subtle It's all silent or almost all silent. He says a couple words, but man, Beatty's able to convey the shock he's in and the way he's sort of outside of himself and he hasn't fully processed what has occurred and it's going to take a while. I think that was really, for me, the most devastating and the most effective bit of acting in the whole film. But Reynolds, certainly here we were seeing that stillness and his ability to recognize that he had that physical presence on screen and he understood what the camera would do with his body on screen and that he didn't have to act really at all. Yeah, just real quickly about Beatty, because you're right about uh, that sequence. He also layers anger in that quietness and a a, a newfound tendency, a newfound tendency for violence that you feel he possibly never had before Mm. and that suddenly now is a part of him. And him trying to figure out how to handle that in that moment is really something. Um, But yeah, as far as there's a great moment that speaks to the physicality of Reynolds' performance that you're talking about. And it's early on. I think it might be after they've navigated their way through some early rapids. And he just stands yeah. in the canoe like a conqueror. Yeah, I and think I wrote Tarzan in my notes. You're not, you know, no one, even even the most experienced outdoorsman, you're not supposed to stand up in your canoe, right? But this is his way of saying, yeah, I know 
this isn't the expert way, but I can handle it. Mm-hmm. I can do this too. And it strikes me. It's it's also a moment. It reminds me that Agira, the Wrath of God, came out the same year. Hmm. And there's a movie that has a lot of parallels, I think, with Deliverance in terms of a group of men who are undone by nature uh, in a way. And that, that standing up in the canoe moment made me, made me think yeah, of that for that's sure. a really fascinating connection that I didn't think of at all. One difference is that Agira is someone who – I think throughout that whole movie, he's lost his mind. Sure. But he also believes that he has dominion over his environment. Yeah. And I don't think think that Reynolds' character, Lewis, really does. He he does exhibit the proper reverence for it. Yes. That line where he says you can't beat the river. He understands that in a way that Agira never would about the jungle. But at the same time, you're right that he's out there because he thinks, okay, I know that I can never tame it. But in trying to tame I it. I can master it. Yeah, that still suggests a, an ego I and can a vanity. Win, I can win the game as he refers to yes. it a couple of times. And, and that's the difference. It does set him – that respect he has does set him apart from the other three men, right. though, who are tourists. And it puts him closer, in a sense, to the locals who I don't think you would describe as environmentalists either, but they have a grudging respect for the wild and for the river in particular it's their and home. what it can do. It's, it's what their they know. Home. And yeah. yeah, and so there's in a way Lewis represents somewhat of this middle ground yes, figure he does. even he's though the he's, bridge. he's ultimately still with these consumer tourists who are just using these resources for their own pleasure. Mm-hmm. There, there's one more um, Reynolds moment that I just want to highlight, which is – and this maybe will move us to the, the notions of masculinity. I love that first morning – when Ed, the John Voight character, wakes up first and he's going to go – he's the closer friend to Lewis. They've gone on yes. trips before. So he goes to nudge him to wake him up so that they can go do some bow and arrow hunting and finds that Lewis is under a lean-to by himself. First, he's he's the man. He doesn't need a tent. Right. right. He's in a lean-to. He's the conqueror. But he's curled up. Yes. Like a baby. And, and he lets out even, a whimper yeah, or something. he's even doing a little whimper. And Ed is – he's a little – you get the sense he's slightly amused by it, but also embarrassed and also maybe a little worried. Like our fearless leader is – what? It, why is he doing mm-hmm. this? And it's also – I mean we're going to spoil things, but yes, it's are. also a premonition of the state Lewis will be in by the yes. time this journey ends. And after he does break his leg and is incapacitated, it shifts fully over to Ed Story and Reynolds kind of – you know. Well, he's just laying at the bottom of the canoe for much of the last half. He is. Let's get to the masculinity and I think you said deconstruction of it. And I'd actually love to hear you first because I think you're actually a little bit more favorable on the film overall, but also with specific regard to its depiction of masculinity. I mean, I think I would say that's a secondary theme for me in terms of what really fascinated me about the film. But I do think it's something that's very purposeful. And I think the Ned Beatty scene is ground zero for that. Mm-hmm. Is what does that mean for these men? Notice Ned Beatty's Bobby is the guy around the campfire making the sexual jokes, mm-hmm. um, and I think that's very pointed as well. Is it's it's sort of the way he's going to insert his manliness into this group. Okay, he's he's not the outdoorsman at all. He has no idea what he's doing. He's not athletic. He's kind of clumsy, but maybe he can make these sexual jokes and get the guys to laugh at him and then he'll worm his way into the circle. Well, I'll say one thing for the system. The system did produce the air mattress. 
or as it's better known among me camping types, the instant broad. <laughs> and if you fellas will excuse me, I'm going to go be mean to my air mattress. <laughs> so it's just interesting to me to watch each of these men negotiate who they are in this dynamic and who holds what authority, who holds what skills, where that puts them in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And we get that really crucial scene with Ed after he goes off on his own to go hunting, comes across a deer and just completely fails. His hand is shaking as he's pulling back the bow and the arrow just kind of falls off limply into Mm -hmm. the forest. So it's just something that I think the movie is interested in playing with throughout. Yeah, it definitely is. There's a lot of nuance to it. I think it's fair to say. And that moment you're referencing with Ed when he can't shoot the buck, that is a moment I actually was a little bit annoyed only because I knew right then and there, or I had a good feeling then and there that that was going to come back into play later. And I knew exactly where the story was going. And I knew the moment Maybe not all the details, but I knew the moment that was going to be one of the emotional climaxes of the film involving that Ed character. And that ties into this idea of masculinity. And one of the things with this movie, actually, that left me wanting a little bit. I'm going to be the guy for a change in the Josh role who is being a little bit contrarian about a a beloved film. I think it's a movie that in its consideration of violence, it aspires to say something. It certainly wants to be this type of existentially profound film even though it is this kind of action adventure movie but at its core it's pulp that i felt reinforces a pretty conventional notion of masculinity and it starts well there's all sorts of ways it starts but even going back to bobby the ned Beatty character you know he's the one that gets raped right the one who's the weakest who we know is the weakest is not the other men and Early on, Lewis says to him, because he doesn't know him, he was brought into the group, I think, by Ed, actually. And he says, can that chubby boy handle himself? So right away, because of his physicality, he's seen as different and less than. And that uber-macho worldview that Lewis has, I think, in the end, really is still Borman and the film's worldview. This idea that the machines are going to fail. As I said, the system's going to fail, and it could all be about survival. And who's going to survive? That's the game. He says to Ed later, now you'll play the game. And I get it. I think that's an interesting notion, this idea that if everything we've built our lives on one day crumbles. And why couldn't it? Because civility is a creation. I mean, the movie made me really think that the whole notion of society and civilized society really is just man trying to have dominion over nature. Use nature for your will, but not be subservient to it. Setting up our own towns and cities and all this technology, it's really about saying, well, we can establish our dominion. But if that all crumbled, it'll be men like Lewis who win the game, who survive. And at the end of the movie, here's where we will get into some spoiler stuff, as haunted as Ed will be by his actions. The movie makes that clear. I think that the movie's admiration for the man he becomes over the course of that last act, how he effectively switches places with Lewis, is really undeniable. That's where the movie's heart is. As Lewis gets hurt and even starts to show more weakness, he lets out cries of pain to go with those whimpers from earlier. It's Ed who becomes the alpha male who will do whatever it takes for the group to survive, including scaling a cliff to get up there to confront the person they think is stalking them. So I just feel like Borman's heart, as I said, is really an Ed 
becoming the man of action he becomes. That's the thrill of this movie. Even at the end, we still wince at Bobby trying to help in the final scene when they're confronted by the sheriff and he says the wrong thing. Again, he can't he can't hold his composure. He can't be the man that Lewis is. He can't be the man that Ed is, who is steely resolved, answers the sheriff's question. He doesn't fold under the pressure. Same way Lewis in the hospital room gets the message and thinks on his toes. I think the movie's saying, yeah, these are the real men. And it wants to reinforce that idea. Oh, man. I did not read it that way at all. I mean, I don't think you can discount the shelving of Burt Reynolds Lewis for the second half of this film. And and I know you're setting up the trajectory yes. that's a transfer. Right. But we've got to recognize that this guy we spent the first half of this review talking about how alpha male he was mm-hmm. gets set aside and is crying from pain like a little baby. And there's no way of covering that up. The movie doesn't let us look away from that. It doesn't just kindly put him away and he falls unconscious. I mean, we're constantly dealing with him being weak. So that's one deconstruction. Um, And I didn't read the Ed character like that at all. Everything he does from the point he takes over from Lewis is more, we're already second guessing that because there's the moral choices he's making mm-hmm. in the fact that they killed in self defense the one mountain man, and then they get into an argument over whether or not to bury the body, to bring right. him to the police. Another death results shortly after that, mm-hmm. Drew, of course, in the river. And I was suspect of everything that Ed was doing at that point. He, he becomes their conflicted. Conscience, And you're right. The scaling of the cliff thing, suddenly I was thinking, where is this going? This is this is kind of strange. But when he gets to the top of the cliff, he's basically lying in wait for the other mountain man that they believe has been hunting them, right? Finally sees him the next morning, pulls his arrow back and has the same trembling yes. problem. Let's go. And we're not sure immediately what happens, but he falls back in the process and one of the other arrows he's been holding goes through his side. So he's he's not this accomplished pro. We've seen Lewis hit a fish. Absolutely. No problem in the river. And here Ed is more of like a klutz. He's wounded himself. Yes, we find when the other man comes forward, he managed to hit him. Okay, so I guess he succeeded. But then the moral quandary comes back into play because he's not so sure – He's the right guy. So for anything, for me, it's further deconstructing this idea of force and violence puts you in the right. Because every time Ed makes Mm -hmm. an action along those lines, there's still a question of whether or not it was the right thing. And that's kind of what lingered for me through the end of the film is that these guys may have escaped the danger, the grave danger facing them immediately. But now what are they going to live yeah. with? And and the Bobby character is interesting, too, um, because, yeah, I see what you mean. He kind of flubs things in front of the sheriff at the end. But he's also, in a way, I don't know if it's repression or he becomes a figure of strength once they get back to civilization. And it probably is the fact that he is just putting down what happened to him. He doesn't want to talk. Yes. He wants to go on with his life. But he's essentially sitting at the table with the people at the hotel and, and acting like right. he's got it all well, together. And for once, he has humility with the people that he was dismissing earlier. Well, that's true as that's well. That's a key so part he's learned a few. He's learned He's humility. learned a lesson. But Ed is the guy. What does he do at that table? Yeah, he weeps. He weeps. Yeah. So I guess I just, I see all of that as a part of this further deconstruction. I mean, yeah, the adventure plot ends mm-hmm. up as yeah. they win. 
Okay. If you look at it that way. Right. But I guess the movie left me wondering, okay, but did they really? Yeah. And that's all fair. The part about Reynolds and how he's rendered ultimately isn't really the counter for me to my argument in terms of the movie's view of masculinity only because I do think it's all part of the transfer to Ed and the movie wants us to see that and even see it in Bobby to an extent. But I think where you really can't argue with it as a deconstruction, what we see here play out is in the doubt that creeps in. I do agree with you on that. The fact that so many actions are determined by these men who in the moment are men of action who are doing what they believe they have to do being strong, violent men. And in both cases, and I'm thinking first in the case on the river that leads them to the moment where they have to go up and confront who they think is the killer. When they think that drew has been shot, that's all based on fear. Probably safe to say that didn't really happen. Right. There was, was no gunshot. That was my perception. Right. That's mine. And later the fact that he goes up, to confront someone who, again, we don't know is even there. And then when he does pull the trigger, we at the end of the film still aren't entirely sure. And in fact, I think the implication is it probably wasn't the guy they were actually after. They actually did potentially kill an innocent man. So that's the subversion is that in those moments where they finally exhibited the type of manly behavior that society wants them to exhibit, they probably screwed up. They probably made really terrible choices. Looking back on it, thinking about it for 12 hours or so after I watched it, I realized that there really is a pretty clear Vietnam allegory here. I mean, I know I went with that Apocalypse Now connection, but I really think it is one of the first movies, one of the first Hollywood movies doing it in an allegorical way, but really to reckon with. Vietnam and the legacy as early back as 1972, not 79, like Apocalypse. Now, I said moving down the river into the heart of darkness. That's that's there. The enemy that is seeming to play by its own rules and that understands its terrain better than these interlopers who really don't get it. And the fact that it's this beautiful terrain, just like Vietnam is, and it can be appreciated for its beauty, but also we've got these men destroying it, just like our soldiers did. And just the whole moral quagmire that we now associate with Vietnam, that's what happens to these men in that moment post-rape scene where they're debating, okay, what do we do out here? The law, you're talking about the law and following what's right and wrong. Where's the law, Burt Reynolds' character says to Drew at that point? So it really did make me think a lot about Vietnam. Yeah, I think that's that on. And you know what's connected to that, which struck me about this film too, rare for mainstream American movies, is the the literal weight it gives to the dead bodies yeah. that start piling up. And, and the first and most notable one would be the mountain man they kill in self defense. I mean, that's not just something that happens quickly and they move on. They have this argument about whether or not to bury him. When they decide to, they have to pull him off the tree that he's fallen Mm -hmm. on. He's been gorily shot by an arrow by Lewis. And and that has to be dealt with. He falls awkwardly. You're right. We have to deal with it because it's in every frame. It's Well, and Borman doesn't Mm -hmm. let it out of the frame ever. Even when they're digging that frantic scene of them digging the shallow grave, the body, the head of the body is in the foreground of the frame yep. while they're in the background digging. And so that's just something that that really did stand out to me, too. And here's, mm-hmm. here's the main thing. Drew's body, too. Drew's body, too, where it's I contorted mean, part by of the it. river. Awful. It's contorted. The whole time you're Terrible. aware of the physicality of the body and the awfulness of what happened. Yes. In another movie where it's just like if Drew was laying there in the water, we would not be thinking about that 
that pain. Yes, we wouldn't think it. about that's the it. violence of this whole scenario in the way that we are because of how the body is positioned. Yeah, Make, makes you feel the pain of, of violence and, and death. Uh, so, so the big thing, and you know, you somewhat touched on that with making the Vietnam analogy too, and and the destruction of of pristine nature in that instance. But really, the big thing for me was this environmental theme that came out and the connection to violence, because the first, not the first words we hear, but it's the first conversation yeah. is. Burt Reynolds Lewis saying, we're going to rape this whole goddamn landscape. We're going to rape it. And he's complaining there. He's yeah, he's complaining. About, he's not saying we're going to do no, it. No, I want to. No, no, he's saying mankind is because yeah. they're building this hydroelectric dam. Now, again, as I mentioned, I think this is more personal for him than idealistic. You know, he likes coming and fishing here. So he's pissed about that. But it is this through line in the movie. And I think that makes, you know, the the Bobby rape sequence, it's... It's just a graphic distillation of this wider violence that's swirling about this movie. And it even upends a little bit the notion of the mountain people that we encounter. And, and you, you start to see, do, do they symbolize the um, – do they symbolize nature itself in a way? Like they're an extension of nature. Sure. And, and in that sense, you see the irony is you begin to see – Bobby and others like him who come as the rapists in the metaphor. There's even the moment where, I mean, yes, he's forced to squeal like a pig, but think about when they first encounter those locals at the gas station and how he treats them. He essentially sees them as barn animals. Yeah, completely. And for, for him, they're there to service his- And for him to mock. And to mock. Yeah. And also, they're, the only reason they're there is to service him, to get- the cars and drive them down to the drop-off point so they can have an easy experience when they yes. get out of their canoes. So I, I think that was what surprised me about Deliverance. I, I, I hadn't realized that it had this undercurrent. Um, and in 72, obviously something that people were thinking about, but is even uh, um, a higher point of contention now when you think about the environment. And I think it was really prescient in that way. Yeah, it's funny what you say about Reynolds Lewis character too, because you might be dead on. It's about this place representing for him his adventure and his recreation and he's angry that it's being destroyed for that reason but i do think there's something grander there's something more grandiose in his yeah. romanticism of it Agreed. because yes he's wearing the wetsuit and you know he's the bow and arrow guy so clearly he is out in nature a lot but the movie does suggest with some of that dialogue, especially at the beginning, that really more than anything, he's angry that what it's doing is it's taking away the opportunity for him to prove himself. That's probably true, too. To prove his manliness. Yes. Yeah, to if prove he who he is. If he, where is he going to do that if he doesn't have this playground right. to do it in? He definitely is is set apart from, from Ed by a degree and from Drew and Bobby by even more degrees. Right. He's also, though, the guy when they do stop at that gas station and they get into an argument about how much they're going to pay them to bring their cars down. And then he says, follow mm -hmm. me to the river. He drives right across their lawns, yes, right totally. across their yards. Totally. It's like, this is my, you may live here, but this is my land. Yeah. I had you pegged completely wrong on this movie, Josh. You didn't think I was going to like it? No. After watching it, I hadn't realized that at the point I watched it, you had already seen it and you had rated it. I missed that fortunately, but I slacked Sam and I said, this is a 2.5 for John. This is a 2.5. What, what, was, what was my And, and it, comes back, it comes back to some of the things that you have singled out 
to praise that opening dialogue. You more than me sometimes, I think, are very sensitive to heavy handedness and moralizing. Yeah. And opening with the dialogue that isn't just talking about what we're doing to the land, but literally uses the terminology of rape, which is going to then be mirrored by actions that happen later in the sure. film. That, some of the dialogue I've already singled out about survival and losing yourself to find yourself, that, to me, is the type of line that a screenwriter puts in to imbue his pulp with more profundity than really it is. The character, I don't really believe the character Lewis in that moment would say it. I think the screenwriter wants him to say it. And then even a moment like the one we get near the end of this film where reckoning with all this and the guilt of it and as they're about to head out of town the roadblock is a church <laughs> a church in front of them that they 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 can't they're get moving past. because I mean, it's going literally church is what's in their way and this notion of reckoning with god for your sins and your transgressions that's pretty heavy-handed yeah it is i think part of it is uh reynolds delivery of those lines really as we talked about sells them um and i think a lot of this was you know if you don't know anything about this movie you're thinking about this terrible rape scene that you've heard about that Mm -hmm. there have been jokes about for decades right and and my fear was that it was going to be just some sort of shock moment that was there to make you feel uncomfortable or fearful of the people, which it does all that, of right? Of course, yeah. But I didn't realize, and yeah, maybe you can say it's done so clumsily that it would be so interwoven to the larger ideas of violence going on here, both mm-hmm. among the other men and how those men react in retaliation and with the environmental things. So, you know, I, I actually found it maybe nuanced isn't the right word, but much more thoughtful than I expected. Two final quick things. I really did appreciate the use of sound here and just the notion of the unknown that's out of the frame. The camera here very often doesn't show us what's ahead on the river. We discover the peril that they're going to be in when they discover it. Borman wants us to kind of experience it along with them and to be jarred by that. But also there are lots of scenes in this film, Josh, where you hear certain things happening outside of the frame or you know something terrible is happening just outside of it or there's just that hint of terror You're not sure what it is, but there's an ominousness of what we can't see that I think he really capitalizes on here. I mentioned the Vietnam allegory, and I'm positive if you Google that, that'll come up somewhere. I'm not way out on a limb or coming up with something groundbreaking there. And I'm not saying this is groundbreaking, but will you entertain a completely half-baked idea? Okay. It's the end of the review, just one little half-baked thing. So maybe because I was thinking of the Vietnam allegory— Or actually, it really came out of Josh wanting to try to pinpoint whether or not Borman gave away some real clues to whether or not there was a gunshot when they were on the river. Did Drew die because he was shot by a mountain man and he fell out of the boat? Or did he die because he just was so sick and existentially drained that he fell out or did he actually kill himself? The movie leaves all of this to be pretty ambiguous. Mm -hmm. I wanted to go back and see how ambiguous and in watching it because it was on DVD. So I had the ability to go back to that scene and rewind it a bunch of times. And as I was rewinding it over and over again to look at Drew falling out of the boat, that moment, 
I was joking in my head, the same joke I make that a lot of people make whenever you really dissect a piece of footage, that I was watching it like the Zabruder mm-hmm. film. And then it really did make me think of JFK. It made me think of JFK and whether or not Borman in some way was actually trying to call on the legacy of that moment in terms of this larger Vietnam America allegory. If you watch it again, he's in the front of the boat. Right. He has a moment where he sort of clutches forward initially, like something's kind of wrong with him. And he shakes his head a little bit. And you've got Ed behind him saying, what's wrong? Right. Like. Jackie kind of reaching for Jack, and then he falls forward, Hmm. and and then he falls forward and falls out, and you've got Ed going after him, just like Jackie was, and just like the Secret Service racing onto the car. There's something just sort of eerily similar as they move along to that motorcade, and that moment when he actually falls out of the boat, and even later when he says Drew was, when they're eulogizing him, he says, Drew was the best of us. He was the idealist among them. And again, just sort of fitting in with this Vietnam allegory. I did Google the hell out of this. I, I found say, nothing. You, oh. I found nothing. So this is probably <laughs> ridiculous. And, and Borman had nothing like this on his mind, but it made me think of it. Well, you should write it down so that the next person who thinks of this and Googles it will find Adam. <laughs> Won't be as I, alone. I'm going to say I'm going to choose to believe he was not shot, but instead and either way would work here. He either became exhausted from just this inner angst that yes. he had over yes. what they had done mm-hmm. or he committed suicide because I I like those both of those as further evidence of deconstructing the masculinity yeah, because no, a man, I agree a man would suck it up right a, a man would just move on as and, the others do as the others try to do right and he's like just more evidence that that doesn't really yeah. work no I don't believe he was shot but potentially recalling some of that imagery Deliverance is available probably wherever you want to see it, your local library, of course, different streaming services and iTunes and Amazon Prime. If you see the movie for the first time or maybe it's multiple times and you want to write in with your thoughts, we'd love to hear from you. Feedback at filmspotting.net. And Josh, that is our show. It is. Over at filmspotting.net, you can find 13 years of reviews, interviews, and top fives in the show archives. Also at filmspotting.net, we are asking you in the film spotting poll, what's the best non-World War II historical epic of the last 25 years? Please, if you haven't already, check out our sister show, The Next Picture Show. It's really good. Right now they're talking about Black Klansman and Malcolm X, and it is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Out in limited release this weekend. Josh, maybe you can chime in here let's let you do the honors with some of these plot descriptions let the corpses tan a grizzled thug and his gang head to an island retreat with a haul of 250 kilograms of gold bullion to lay low however a bohemian writer his muse and a pair of gendarmes further complicate things as allegiances are put to the test gendarmes in an already overly lengthy plot description what's going on here <laughs> the director sean baker who's been on film spotting great director changerine the florida project says about let the corpses tan amazing do whatever you can to see this on the big screen what else do you need to know mandy also out in limited release it stars nick cage set in the primal wilderness of 1983 oh remember that time i do red miller is a broken and haunted man he hunts an unhinged religious sect 
who slaughtered the love of his life. Pair it with Deliverance. Out in wide release, A Simple Favor, starring Anna Kendrick as a mommy blogger who seeks to uncover the truth behind her best friend's sudden disappearance. The best friend, played by Blake Lively, directed by Paul Feig, and Unbroken, Path to Redemption. A sequel to the unbroken biopic about Olympian and World War II hero Louis Zamperini? Apparently, yes, that's exactly what it is. White Boy Rick also out in wide release. That is starring Matthew McConaughey. Next week on the show, we're not going to talk about any of those films. We are going back into the classic film archive for a sacred cow review of Lawrence of Arabia. And we're going to share our top five David Lean scenes. David Lean so big with the kids these days. I think this show is really... <laughs> Really going to be a big hit, Josh. I can't wait to dive in. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. I know not every one of you has rated us or given us a review on Apple Podcasts. So if like half of you could this episode that would be great it'll help us reach new listeners our music this week it comes from mountain man see what sam did there i see it the new album magic ship more is at wearemountainman.com for film spotting i'm josh larson and i'm adam kempinar thanks for listening this conversation can serve no purpose anymore goodbye Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.